0: Well, if you're new, we're in a series called Abraham. Abraham's one of the most famous people that ever has lived. Um, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all look to him as as the father of their faith. But what we're learning about Abraham, and you can turn to Genesis 13, type 2 or turn to Genesis 13, we're going to pick right up in the story. What we're learning about Abraham, it's the same thing you'd learn if you read about Jacob or Joseph Um, or Isaac, uh, you know, or, or Joshua, or any of these biblical characters is that they're not superheroes, they're sinners. And that their life, just like your life, is going to be full of ups and downs, it's going to be full of failure, it's going to be full of sin, it's going to be full of mistakes, it's going to be full of bad decisions, it's going to be full of taking not the right advice. And you're going to have to learn, as we're going to learn from the life of Abraham, how to repent, how to grow, how to learn. And it's all called the journey of faith. This whole series is about faith. And let me just remind you, if you were here last week, and if you weren't here, let me kind of catch you up. The definition of faith that we're using as a church for this series, we believe it arises right out of Scripture, is taking God at his word and taking your next step. That's it. And there's no limit to that. You can do that today, no matter where you are in your Christian faith. You say, this is what God has said, I'm going to take my next step. And there's courage in that. And there's boldness in that. And there's decision making in that. And there's movement in that. And there's action in that. And that's what God's calling us to. And if you look at the story of Abraham, uh, the, the beginning of the story is like the beginning of all our Christian journeys. The Lord comes to us. The Lord saves us. We hear the word of the Lord. Our whole lives change. We, we're called to mission. We're called to service. We're called to sanctification, to be holy. We're called to be a part of a community. It's all going great. The first nine verses are great. We get to verse 10, from verse 10 to verse 20 or 21, chapter 12. Uh, Abraham is a complete failure. He doesn't know how to deal with suffering. He ends up leaving the land God's promise. He ends up lying He ends up forsaking the closest relationship in his life and handing over his wife to a dangerous situation. And and it all starts with the language that Abraham went down. What I want you to do is pick up in chapter 13, and I want you to be encouraged. In chapter 13, verse 1, here's what it says. So, it's like, well, what do you do when you go down? What do you do when you are struggling? What do you do when terrible things have happened to you? What do you do when you've done terrible things? I'll tell you, it's right here. So Abraham went up. That's what you do. What do you do if you're down? You start going up. You start making decisions to repent of sin, to confess your sin, to learn new things. It says, Abraham went up. Some of you, you went down this weekend. You, some of you, you went down, you, some of you have been down for like a decade. And you've made sinful and you've made foolish and you've made rebellious decisions, it just happens. Sometimes, whole seasons of people's lives, they just decide I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna go down to Egypt all of my college life. I'm going to go to Egypt the whole time I'm in medical school. I'm going to go down to Egypt uh, the whole time I date this non-Christian. The whole time I'm in this unhealthy relationship. The whole time I got this job where I'm making tons of money. The whole time I moved to another city. It's like, well, what do you do? Well, you go up. That's what you do. This is supposed to be incredibly encouraging. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, no matter how far down you have been that you have gone, turn around and start going back up. It says this, so Abraham went up from Egypt... And he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into Negev. Now, here's what he's going to have to do. And and we're going to follow the journey of faith today. We're going to see there's three things that Abraham's going to have to deal with, okay? Here's the first thing. What are you going to do with suffering and failure in your life? Like, if you're going, and, and teach your kids this. Life is very, very hard. They're definitely going to suffer. Suffering, there's financial suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's physical suffering, there's spiritual suffering. Just get ready. You're definitely going to suffer. One of the problems in Abraham's life was he was unable to suffer, A famine came, he ran away. You've got to make decisions today that no matter what happens, illness, injury, come into your life, you're going to be committed to God's word and God's people. So we see suffering. Here's the second thing you have to learn how to deal with, Uh, and we're going to see how he does this. Uh, You have to learn how to deal with failure. Um, If you're going to try to do anything with your life, if you're going to try to have a career, if you're going to try to have a family, if you're going to try to love a man or try to love a woman, if you're going to try to raise kids, if you're going to try to make money, if you're going to try to keep money, If you're going to try to have significant relationships, you are definitely going to fail. I am definitely going to fail. Abraham fails a ton. He failed his wife. Right? He's failed God. God asked him to. He's failed a lot. He's failed himself. And what do you do when you fail? Well, here's what you do. This is very, very helpful. You use minimal necessary force on yourself. You're not too hard. You're not too easy on yourself. Some of you, you're too easy on yourself. You sin, you don't even confess your sin. You don't even worry about it, you don't even repent. You're you're, you're always rationalizing what you're doing. That's one extreme, okay? But many of you are way too difficult on yourself. You're still beating yourself up unnecessarily about things that you have done a long time ago. And what do you do? You confess the sin and you move on. This is also when you're parenting. What do you do with your kids? Minimal necessary force. I only want to be as hard on myself or on another person so that I can learn my lesson. Why would I want to be more hard on myself than that? Why would you be more hard on yourself? It's not necessary, I learn my lesson, then I move on. And don't all be afraid of failure. Failure is not a big deal. Fear of failure is a big deal. You're afraid of failure. It's like, here's what failure is. Failure is education. Some of us have been very educated, okay? <laughs> That's what failure is. Failure is, okay, I made, you know, maybe I sinned, maybe I mistake, maybe I took a wrong turn, maybe I took bad advice. Okay, no big deal. I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to move on from it. What hinders people... From making decisions, from sharing Christ, from starting businesses, from whatever. It's fear of failure. And so, what we see with Abraham is he, he goes down, but then he comes back up. Look at verse 2. And a lot has changed for Abraham. Now, Abraham's rich. Look at verse 2. So, Abraham was very rich. Before he wasn't, now he is. All that happened in Egypt. So, Abraham was very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And some of you think, well, if I had more money, I would have less problems. No, you have different problems. The, the, the more money that you have, not a bad thing to have a lot of money, the more money that you have, you just have different types of problems. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about it. It's like, well, the more you have, the more you have to take care of. The more you have, the more government takes from you. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. And so what, what we're going to see is, and it's going to be actually a good thing, is, is Abraham did not do, this is unique, but Abraham did not do well with poverty, but he does very well with prosperity because he's learned his lesson. And so what we're going to begin to see is how he deals with it. Look at verse 3. And he journeyed, right? This is what faith is. Faith is a journey, it's moving forward, it's not letting yourself be overly discouraged. And he journeyed from Negeb as far as Bethel. If you're reading this and you know the area, you go, wait, you're going backwards. You're going up, but you're going back. Exactly. From Bethel to the place where his tent had been. If you underline in your Bible, if you highlight in your Bible, I'd underline this at the beginning. It's like, well, what do you do when you failed? What do you do when you're suffering? What do you do when, you're relation, when, when it's a dark night of the soul and you feel distant from God? You go back to the place you last met God. That's what you do. It, it's in here twice. It's not a mistake. Look what it says. At, verse 4, at the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. What do you need to go back to? Who do you need to go back to? Where do you need to go back to? Martin Luther said the entire Christian life is a going back to the very beginning. It's like, okay, some of you, you need to go back to a certain discipline in your life. You're like, you know, you've not read the Bible in a long time in any kind of consistent way. But then you look back and you go, well, when I was in high school, when I was in college, or when we were first married, it's like I was growing so much. And you look back in your life and you go, well, that, well, I know exactly why. Because I re- daily read my Bible that day. Maybe for you it's journaling. I used to journal. I used to pray to the Lord through journaling. I would write down my thoughts. I'd confess my sins. I was growing a ton. It's like, well, you don't journal anymore. Well, you go back. Well, I used to pray a lot, but I don't really do that anymore. I used to actually go on these prayer walks, and I would go in my neighborhood. I don't do it. Well, go back. Right? This is exactly what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. Go back to your first love. So Sometimes it's not a, uh, a discipline. Sometimes it's a literal place. For some of you, it is. It's like, it's like if you went back to your college campus because it was a spiritual greenhouse for you. And, and I know we, sometimes you just got to go back in your mind. You can't go back physically, okay? But if you go back to that place... Like, when I go back to Elon University and I see the freshman dorm that I lived in where I was challenged to live missionally and I, was ch- and I saw people come to faith in Christ in that dorm, when I go back to that dorm, I'm like, it's an overwhelming experience for me. Some of you, it's going to be a camp. Some of you, it's going to be a conference. Some of you, it's going to be a retreat center. I've heard many stories about people who've come to faith in Christ at camps or retreats and you go back and you remember what God did there. For some of you, it's a, it's a person, it's a relationship. You need to go back to your spouse emotionally. You haven't gone back to your spouse emotionally, you haven't pursued her, and because of that, it's like, you know, actually, when we had a great relationship with my wife, I had a great relationship with the Lord. When I had a great relationship with my husband, I had a great relationship with the Lord. All right, go back. And so what we see is he begins to go back, he goes back to the altar. The altar, um, one commentator said, this altar, it's the first church planting in the Bible. Some people think it's church planting a new idea. No, it's a very old idea. Abraham would go and he would plant an altar, and the altar wasn't just for him, it was for him Immediately. But hey, here's a place where people can worship, they can meet the Lord, they can see how much he means to me, they can see me worship him and follow him and pray to him and seek him and offer things to him. Well, sounds like a church. So here, here's this altar, here's, this, here's what he's doing. So he begins to go back to this place. And then there is his knucklehead nephew Lot, okay? Lot is a lot of trouble. Here, here, look at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram... Also had flocks and herds and tents. Abraham is or Lot is one of those guys who woke up on third base and thinks he had a triple. Have you ever met people like that? They've had every advantage in life and they have been so unaware of their unearned privilege. This guy, he has had everything. Everything he has, he has because of Abraham. He doesn't have Abraham. Lot basically does not have his own relationship with the Lord. The Lord never speaks to Lot. Lot never speaks to the Lord. Lot has a tent. Lot doesn't have an altar. And so what we begin to see is Lot is not really his own person spiritually. Now, it's interesting because in 2 Peter, Peter writes and goes, Lot was a righteous man. So we got to kind of go, how does the whole Bible go together? Okay, I guess Lot was a Christian, but he was a nominal one. I fear like some of you. The only person that knew he was a Christian was him and Jesus. (laughs) Nobody else knew he was a Christian. This is kind of Lot's story. And so Lot and Abraham, they begin to have conflict. Look, you can find this in verse 6. So... So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There's going to be conflict. What we're actually going to see is that Lot ends up not being a help but a hindrance to Abraham his whole life. Let me just say, some of you have a Lot in your life. Like a person like Lot in your life. They have different values. They have different priorities. They only bring you down spiritually. And you need to have an ex-boyfriend. Or an ex girlfriend or an ex business partner. Because they, they don't, they're only, you, you keep making excuses for them, you keep rationalizing for them, you keep talking yourself into why it's okay that you're doing what you're doing, but they're only hindering you. They, they begin to have conflict, and then I want you to see what happens in verse 7. So it says they're having conflict, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then there's this interesting thing. Whenever something that seems out of place is in the Bible, you want to go, why is it there? Well, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So here's what it's saying. Uh, the second thing that Abraham had to deal with after he has to deal with his own suffering and his own failure is he, to, he has to learn how to deal with conflict. And if you're going to be in a community group, if you're going to be in a family, if you're going to stay married, if you're going to have significant relationships, if you're going to have a job where you work with other people, okay, if you're going to have friendships, you're going to have to learn how to deal with conflict. And what it says here is, that it says the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. Why does it say that? Because it's saying you have to deal with the internal conflict between a family and a church so you can handle the external conflict that's happening out there. Does that make sense? So what happens in some people's lives is is their their family is so dysfunctional that the moment something terrible happens outside of them, they can't handle it. It's like the husband and wife are fighting all the time. It's like, okay, now try not having a good job. Try, Try having a financial crisis. Like, you can't handle it your family's so dysfunctional, your relationship's so dysfunctional, you're so angry at one another. Okay, imagine, you know, you know, uh, there's there's, there's uh, some kind of need in your life, and, and, and you need you need help. It's like, well, you can't do it because you've got all this conflict inside. And so what, what he's saying is, that the whole idea here is that Abraham and Lot need to deal with their conflict so that they can handle the other enemies that are outside of them. And I want you to see how Abram does this, because there's three ways, and this isn't my stuff, this is Ken Sandy, Ken Sandy's uh, a great Christian thinker, he, he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and he says, when it comes to dealing with conflict, there are three types of people, right? And it's going to be, you're in one of these categories. Uh, I'm in one of these categories. Um, you're either a peacebreaker, a faker, or a peacemaker, okay? When it comes to conflict, a peacebreaker, it's like, um, if you know the Enneagram, it's like an unhealthy eight, okay? They dominate, they love conflict, they want to win at all costs, they will run over you, jump on you, and not even realize they're doing it. That oftentimes a peace breaker wants to win at all costs. They are not afraid of conflict, and they always want to win. Now we have some peace breakers, but I think in our society we have a lot more peace fakers. Peace fakers act like there's peace, but they're passive aggressive. They they want to keep the peace, right? Jesus says, "Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers." They want to keep the peace. This is like the aunt at Thanksgiving who, you know, as soon as something difficult comes up, she goes, "Don't let's not talk about this," and she tries to change the subject. Here, has some more mashed potatoes. Or you know what I mean? It's like, you know this kind of person, right? They, they, they don't, and, and here's what often happens, right? A peace breaker marries a peace faker, right? And one person dominates the relationship and the other person comes bitter and resentful and angry. Or there's, two, or there's two peace breakers and it's World War III all the time about everything. Or it's peace fakers and they don't fight at all. They've got a great relationship until 15 years in when they both blow up at each other for a million paper cuts that neither talked about. It's like, this would have been helpful if we would have talked about this incrementally over the last 15 years of our life as it bothered you and as it arose. Well, there, instead of being a peace breaker, which, thank God, Abram's not, and he's not, a peace, um, he's not a peace breaker, he's not a peace faker, he's a peacemaker. Now, here's what a peacemaker is. It's somebody whose goal is not to win. That's the peace breaker's goal. It's not to avoid things. That's the peace faker's goal. It's to restore the relationship. That you want, what you want to do in conflict is you don't want to, you want to defeat the problem, not defeat the purpose. Or sorry, (laughs) that didn't make sense. Um, Defeat the problem, not defeat the person. That's what I'm trying to say. Because here's what happens in in any relationship. It's like, well, what happens, you know, say you're the husband and um, you win the argument with your wife. It's like, guess what you do? Now you live with a loser. Because whoever doesn't win the argument is the loser. Then you live with the loser. So now you're both losers. (laughs) Nobody wants to live with a loser. No one wants to be a loser. And so the goal is instead, hey, I want to be really, and this is hard, this takes like a long time, I want to be tough on ideas, I want to be tender with people. I want to treat all people equally, but not all ideas equally. And we want to to be able to talk about these things, right? Like I was talking to a guy this weekend, he was telling me about a difficult relationship in his life. And he said, well, every time we talk, it just gets worse, and and it it gets emotional, and then I get emotional, and, and I just said, well, you know, you're going to have to learn how to fight about this. And by fight, I mean, you know, talk stumble through talking through all this you may have to talk about this and work this through and try to make peace and have healthy conflict over this for like six months but would it be worth having conflict for six months to have peace for 30 years instead of talking about it then no one talks about it till it rises up six months later and then you go what's the problem and well that's not the issue it's all the stuff underneath that we've never talked about oh so now we're up till three in the morning but then we won't talk about it for six more months So what would it look like to actually have peace? So let's look what he does. You can see this in verse 8. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. I'd like to talk about this. I don't want to avoid problems. I don't want to be willfully blind. I don't want to act like everything's okay when it's not. For we are kinsmen. He says this. Here's what he does. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? So how do you deal with conflict? Let's look. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand the, the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So, so how do you deal with conflict? Well, and this is so hard, and this is why it's difficult, right? You have to be generous and sacrificial. It's like, well, what, what I've never seen a relationship where both people have decided we're going to both be generous toward one another. And we're both going to be sacrificial toward one another. And then here's another thing with Abraham. He doesn't talk about his rights. See, the interesting thing in this story is like anyone who reads this goes, Well, I know who the land goes to. Abraham! He has the promises of God. He's older and he's an uncle. It's like three different reasons why he could go, this is what which is what our culture does. This is what I deserve. This is exactly what I'm entitled to. I'd like to tell you all about my rights. Well, that's not how two people claiming all their rights is, is a disaster for conflict continuously. Instead, he doesn't talk about his rights, he sacrifices, he's generous, and he's willing to take the lesser land. Right? It's like, well, you know, and that sounds all nice until we try to practically do that. It's like, well, what does it look like in your life to take the lesser land, in my life to take the lesser land? as it means letting your spouse watch the television show that he or she would like to instead of you. And that's like a simple thing, but it's like many of us won't do that. So those of us with young kids, it means that maybe it means getting up early in the morning before our spouse to help with the kids or clean the kitchen or whatever he or she would like that would be helpful. And what we see is, this, is the only reason he could take the lesser land is because he actually believed God. It's like we can't take the lesser land because it's, always, it's all about compare, compete, conquer. I have to have it. And he takes the lesser land. Now look what Lot does. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. By the way, this is going to be the exact same language that's used in Genesis of Eve. He lifted up his eyes. Eve looked at the tree and he saw the Jordan Valley. By the way, Jordan means death. He sees death valley. But it was well watered. Everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, and then it's going to say later, he takes it for himself. It's the same language of, of, of Eve with the, the tree. Everything like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And then the, the, the commentator here makes a note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's saying, here's, what, here's what, and this is our temptation, right? We look at it something and we, we see it with very short-sightedness. It's like, you know, he sees, he sees Sodom and Gomorrah apart from an eternal perspective. He sees Sodom and Gomorrah apart from the judgment of God. He just sees what he temporarily wants. And he's going to move. This is interesting. If you, this is why it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. If you read this whole story, um, Abraham is going to end up moving his entire family to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and it's interesting. If you, read, it's, it, if you read a little bit later in, in Genesis... There's this very difficult to read account of Lot and his daughters. People read this account and they go, how how does this crazy stuff happen? Here's what happens. Lot brings his daughters to Sodom and Gomorrah and they get perverted. And his wife dies in Sodom. It's like, well, what's he doing? He's looking at it and he goes, where's the best weather? Where's the biggest salary? I'll move there which is how most college graduates and most people make decisions. Where's the beach? Where's the mountains? I'm not thinking about a great legacy for my family. I'm not thinking where's my wife or husband going to flourish. I'm not thinking are my kids going to be educated and cared for and have a church. And I see people do this all the time. Oh, I'd like to live in that place in the world. And I'd like to have that salary. And I'd like to work for that company. Okay, great, but you haven't thought about your family at all. I've seen this. We had a guy. He left at one point. Wanted to pursue things, did things unwisely, ends up coming back to our church saying, you know, I won't even get into it, but he's been fully you know, re-engrafted into our church and everything and doing well now, but just went for himself, by himself, foolishly without making any decisions. Is there a good church in that area? Is this a place I could, I could flourish spiritually? It, um, Lot doesn't think that. Here's what it says in verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Whenever you see east in the Bible, that's not good. East of Eden is not a good idea. Thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot settled. And this is interesting. He goes, I'm going to go to Sodom. And then, Oh, look, I'm among the cities. Right? Sin takes you further than you want to go. charges you more than you want to pay. keeps you longer than you want to stay. Uh, I'm among the cities of the valley. And he moved his tent. No altar. No altar with, with uh, him. Just a tent. And he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. The Lord doesn't even speak to Abraham until Lot leaves. Lift up your eyes. Lot tried to lift his eyes up. These are, we're supposed to compare and contrast these. Lift up your eyes, that's what the Lord says to him, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all of the land... You settled for less, and I'm going to give you all of it. All of the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Then he says in verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I give it to you. Now, this is what's called dedicating a place to the Lord. I've seen families do this before. They buy a new house. They invite their friends and family over before they move in. Let's pray through this house. Let's lay our hands on this house. Let's ask the Lord. I I saw a family that they built a house, and then they they wrote scripture verses while it was being built. They wrote scripture verses all you know in the frames, in the framing of the house. It's. I've seen people do this with their cars. Like, Lord, this is your car. I've seen people. You can do this with your cubicle. You can do this with. I, I was at, there was a a, a a family in our church. They were starting a business. They they said, Hey, you know, Kyle, will you come? Will you dedicate this building with us? We'd love to pray over it. We'd love to. This is our business. It's the Lord's. We just want to honor the Lord with it. That, that's kind of the language here. So I arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Verse 18, so Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar. So with him, it's always tent and altar, tent and altar, tent and altar. Abram begins and ends with worship. So for, for Abram, chapter 13 is a great chapter. What happens in chapter 14, if you look at verses 1 through 10, I won't read those, but in 1 through 10, there's lots of war. You have to understand this about your life and about the Bible, is that war is inevitable. There is a spiritual war, physical war, all types of conflict. Verses 1 through 10 is a bunch of tribes and a bunch of kings. Uh, today we'd say it's a bunch of culture wars, right? And what's interesting in verse 10 is, uh, the first 10 verses, Abraham doesn't get involved in all of the wars, right? Part of what you need to understand is what are the wars that I need to be fighting? What are the battles that I need? I don't need to fight every battle. I don't need to comment on everything on Facebook. I don't need to write every blog post. I don't need to be, pa- I can't be passionate about everything. I have to be passionate about a few things. So he's not getting involved in all these battles until it becomes very personal. And I want you to see what happens here. In verse 11, we get some more information. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot. So here's the metaphorically what this means. When you give in to sin, when you make foolish, selfish decisions, you end up being held captive by sin. So did Lot think he's going to go down there, and then he's going to get imprisoned, and then he's going to get captured, and then everything that he has is going to get taken from him? No, he doesn't think any of that, but that's exactly what happens. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way, verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. So this is the only place, I believe, in Genesis where Abraham is called the Hebrew. Hebrew literally means the one who crosses over, the one who moves from what is safe to what is difficult. It says, Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive... He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, this is what I love. You see Abraham. And in chapters 13 and chapters 14, Abraham is a good man. But because he's good does not mean he's harmless. It does not mean he's naive. It does not mean that he's weak. I I don't know, again, where, you know, I've told you this before, but, but Nietzsche said that what most people think is morality is really cowardice. It's that men and women are too afraid to be bad, so they're, they're good because they can't do anything else. And what Nietzsche said is, is the best men, and it was interesting because he was an interesting critic of Christianity, and he taught us a lot of things. Nietzsche said the best men are dangerous but disciplined. You would never want to mess with them. But what they're doing is they're taking everything for good. It's like, well, it's like, well, who do you want to come? What if you were captured? What if something terrible happened to you? What would you like? You would like somebody who's stronger than your captives, but who's a good person, who nobody else would want to mess with. That's exactly the kind of man that Abraham is. And I don't know how in America, especially Christians, have become known for those who don't have anything to say, those who don't speak up, those who don't believe anything, those who don't have any convictions, those who don't do anything. What Abraham is, is he's somebody that you would not want to mess with. It's like what you should be. You should know what you believe. You should know what you're passionate about. You should, you should be tender with your family and tough for your family. You should be tender with your friends and tough for your friends. And we're going to see Abraham goes, and he, re, he goes and rescues them. And he has a strategy. Look at verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. It's 50 miles. That's a long, that's a long way on foot. Then he brought back all the possessions and he brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the, look, he's rescuing, and he's rescuing the women and the people. He has a plan. He goes and does something. And so on your faith journey, first we see he has to deal with suffering and failure. And we see how he does that. Secondly, he has to deal with conflict both internal and external. And we see how he does that. He deals with conflict internally with his family and his church. He deals with conflict externally with enemies, okay? He's, 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 he's a good person. He's not a harmless, weak, naive person. And then finally, he's going to have to, and this is some of the most dangerous things. This is, it, this, this is what ruins most men and women. He has to learn how to deal with success. Right? It's like, well, there's failure. That's difficult. There's suffering. Well, that's difficult. But a lot of times, people are humbled by that. And so, you know, they suffer. They fail. They make foolish decisions. They wreck their lives. And they're pretty open to hearing about God. But it's when you make a lot of money, it's when you get your dream job, it's when you have all your kids and everything seems to be going well, it, it, that's when, oftentimes, it's, it's success that, that, can, that can be dangerous to us. So I want us to see how he deals with success. Verse 17, after his return from the, from the defeat of Ch- um, Ch- Cheddarlamor, Ched- and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. So it moves from two men to two kings. The two men were Abram and Lot, now it's two kings. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's he's the most mysterious character. I think it would be safe to say the most mysterious character in the Old Testament. This is the only place he's mentioned, but he's mentioned in, in the Old Testament, but he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and he's given three chapters in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So it says this, And Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, Is the king of Salem, which means city of peace, brought out bread and wine, which most people think is a foreshadowing of communion, and he was a priest. So he's a king priest who brings out bread and wine whose name is righteousness. Now, we don't know for sure. Some people say, is this a theophany? Is this a pre incarnate Christ? Here's what we know for sure it's definitely pointing, like all the scripture does, it's pointing to Christ in a very visible way. So he shows up. And here's what he does in verse 19. And he blessed him. So Abraham was told, you're going to be a blessing. So this is also what we see is that Melchizedek is a spiritual superior to Abraham. He blesses him. And he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So how do you know if you have, if you're handling victory well? if you're handling success well, if you're handling winning well, you respond to the Lord in generosity and giving. Do you see this? And Abram gave a tenth of everything. Now, if you know your Bible, you go, wait a second, tithing hasn't even been taught yet. Now, tithing is taught in the Old Testament. Tithe means to give a tenth. But Abram's doing something before the Bible tells him to do it. And and whenever, I see this all the time, I saw this in my life. I became a Christian, I started to do things before I even knew the Bible told me I was to do them. Because I have the law of God written on my heart, I have the spirit of God in me. That's what happens. When a person comes Christian, they all of a sudden are like, I don't need to be looking at that. And then they read the Bible, it goes, don't look at that. It goes, okay, good. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, they start repenting of sin, they read the Bible, you should repent. You know, I, I can remember, I went to my cafeteria, I went and sat down with my friends, probably terribly how I did this, but I went and sat and I told them how Christ changed my life and I told them what I thought, you know, I told them the main message of Christianity, that I was in 10th grade, I was probably a Christian for two weeks. I, I promise you, I, I, I evangelized to my friends before I knew what the word evangelism meant. You know, right? You begin, to convict, you begin to be convicted about sin in your life, right? You, you, I see a lot, people the kind of faith in Christ, they stop cussing like a sailor, okay? Or whatever. This happens all the time because you have the Spirit of God. And what he ends up doing here is he ends up giving a percentage. Now, this is interesting because he's very, very wealthy, yet he still gives a significant percentage of his income to the kingdom of Christ. And what we know statistically, and we don't have the data as much on Christians, but we know that Americans, the more you make, the less you give percentage-wise, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like if, you, if your household makes less than 75000 you give like 4 to 6% of your income away. To charities and nonprofits, and, but if you make more than like 100000 or 150000 as a family, then you give away less than 2%. It's like, well, how does that happen? Well, it's because we tend to, be, we tend to focus on a dollar amount instead of a percentage. And people get very comfortable with a dollar amount. Here's 20 bucks, here's 50 bucks, here's 100 bucks, here's 500 bucks, here's 1,000 bucks. Even though my income is tripled, quadrupled, this is the number I'm comfortable at numerically. Whereas the Bible always should see in, in the New Testament, it's, it's about percentage. It, it, it's even more than percentage. It's about, it's about sacrificial, it's about generosity, it's about joyful. So we never teach a percentage, but we teach that you should choose a percentage, right? And some of you, you're like, I know you, some of you, you know the exact percentage you give zero. You know, it's very easy for you to calculate. It's, a say, it's actually the same percentage and the same dollar amount. Zero dollars, zero cents, zero percent. Very easy to calculate. But what you want to do over life is you want to say, look, I want to make giving a priority, right? God gave his best, God gave his first, God gave his only. So it's like, okay, sometimes we give our only. Lord, this is my only bonus. I'm giving all of it. I give my only. So we give our best, we give our only, we give our first. We make it a priority because God gave his first, God gave his best, God gave his only. We choose a percentage and then over our life we make it progressive. Because maybe you get comfortable at 10%. Or 12, whatever the percentage is. And you go, well, geez, my goodness, I'm making two, three times what I was making when I started giving 10%. And the number's gone up and the percentage has been the same and it feels big, but you get what I'm saying. And some people think, well, I've got too much money to give that big of a percent. Well, look at Abraham. Abraham, very, very wealthy. And so he begins to give. He begins to give generously. But then it is contrasted with the king of Sodom. So the king of Salem says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bless you. And and I'm just going to speak the blessing of God in your life. That's one way to understand victory. The king, uh, that's the king of Salem. The king of Sodom, on the other end, is, is going to tempt you to be all about yourself when it comes to victory. Do you see this? And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take everything for yourself. You've earned it all. And I love what Abraham does. But Abraham said, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord that's the language I've made a commitment, I made a vow. God most high, possessor of heaven and of earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Now, this is awesome. Here's what we We're getting a little bit of background. Here's what we're understanding. That before Abraham went to war, he, I guess, got on his knees and said to the Lord, Lord, I'm not going to take anything that, that I win in this battle. I know that the, the, you know there's going to be, if I win this, there's going to be a lot of temptation, right? Just so you know, that, here, this is what normally happened back then. Here's a bunch of women for you. And here's a, here's a bunch of things that you, you have earned. And here's a bunch of houses, and here's a bunch of extra money. And, and here's what he does. He, he gets on before the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm going to make some commitments before the temptation comes. Which is a great lesson to learn in life. It's like, you need to make a commitment. I'm only going to date a Christian before you meet the very good-looking non-Christian who will go to church with you. Right? And we laugh because it's true. It's like we need, right? You need to make the commitment financially, Lord. We're going to be a giving family. We're going to give, save, live before you get the raise. Maybe before you get your first full-time job. You need to decide this is what the values of our family are going to be about. This is what our schedule is going to be about. This is the type of family we're going to be before we're tempted to do every athletic and every academic and every activity. And you make these commitments. And Abraham says that's what he wants to do. But then I love this. Look at verse 24. I will take nothing. I love that. He's, but but what the young men have eaten, so they've already eaten some stuff. The, my men have eaten some stuff. That's fine. And the share of the men who went with me, so men risked their lives with him. And he says, "Here's what I would like. I would like them to get what they deserve. I would like them to have what they what, what the spoils." He says, "Let Adnor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share." This this reminds me, of, and not all of you have seen this movie, but this reminds me of a scene from Shawshank Redemption. Okay, there's a great movie. Um, where um, a guy named Andy Dufresne is the main character in it. And there's this scene where they're all working on the top of this building. They're, they're, doing all, this hot, they're all in jail. And they're, they're working, and, um, and, and it's a long story, but basically Andy Dufresne starts talking to one of the guards and says, I'm going to help you with something. If, if in return for me helping you, you'll give each of my men three beers. And so he helps them, and, and the scene goes on, and, and basically he, the guys, the, the guards bring out all these beers for the men. And the men are sitting there. They've been in prison. Their whole, you know, they're sitting there drinking a beer, and the one of the men brings a beer over to Andy Dufresne and says, here you go. And Andy Dufresne goes, no, I stopped drinking a couple years ago. And there's this sense of all the men are like looking at him like, wow, you did this for us. You, you made a decision, and you asked for something, and you're not even going to benefit from it. And, and he says basically, what it, what, what, there's a second reason Abraham does this, because he wants God to look great. And, and, there's, and, and it's interesting because Abraham makes three different decisions about generosity. It's not the main idea in this passage, but if you think about it, what does he do? He chooses to be generous to his family. He takes the lesser one, he gets them the better. Then he takes, so he's generous to his family. Then the second thing he tends to do is he says, okay, I'm going to be generous with the church and the kingdom of God. And he gives a percentage of income there. And then he practices generosity with most people think his non-Christian men that work for him. So I'm going to be generous with the world. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to be generous with my family. I'm going to be generous with the church. Wow, what a great thing. And then he says, and I, and I want the Lord to get all the glory. I don't want anyone thinking that anyone made me rich. It was the Lord that did this. I want him to get the honor. Now, as you read the end of this, it's very interesting because you go, there's one thing that if you read the story again and again and again, you've got to be asking this question, where's Lot? I mean, where is he, right? It's like, Lot, it's like he never thanks Abraham. It's like, exactly it's like the whole idea is in this story, it's like, well, how, we're, we're left with a cliffhanger here. How will Lot respond? And here's why we're left with that, because you are Lot. I am Lot. You are not Abraham in the story. You, you and I were Abraham last week, okay? Um, this week, we're Lot. It's like, what do we do? It's like, well, we were uh, selfishly wanting what we thought was best for us, and it ended up enslaving us. And Jesus Christ said to us, I'm going to be the better Abraham. I'm going to take the lesser land. There's no lesser land than the cross of Christ. There's no worse place to go than the cross of Christ. And so he takes the lesser land, and then what happens? Well, we go and do what we want, and we end up getting enslaved. And then guess what Jesus Christ does, the better Abraham? He comes, and he rescues. He doesn't say, was it your fault? He doesn't say, get yourself out of it. He doesn't say, work your way out of it. He comes and pursues us and comes after us. And he doesn't just risk his life. He actually sacrifices his life. He actually gives his life for us and for our sins. And then what does he do in response? He doesn't take anything for himself, but gives it all to us. He said, well, here's, I, didn't need, I actually didn't need any of this. I was very rich. I didn't need forgiveness of sins. Here you go. I, I didn't need to be adopted. There you go. I, I didn't need the Holy Spirit. I had him. There you go. You know, I didn't need a relationship with God. I already have that. There you go. And he gave it all to us. And then what, how should we respond? We should respond the way that Abraham did. Say, Lord, you, you, it's your blessing. We want to give generously in response. In response, we want to respond to your word with faith and with worship. Let's pray. Lord, we are, a, we are Lot in this story. We are too quick to trust our eyes and to give in to sin and to run to people and places that we shouldn't even be in that end up, that end up bringing a lot more harm and hurt to our lives and the people that we love. And Lord, we just thank you that you rescued us. As we read the story of Abraham, we realize that the reason that he had the ability to go after Lot was that he realized that you had rescued him the chapter before. And what's going to give us the ability to love our neighbor and to love our coworker and to love our child and to love our friend is to realize that you have already loved us and have already rescued us. We thank you for all of this and ask it in your name. Amen.